0: I have said that I've avoided a lot of accidents in the mountains because I'm really conservative. But the truth is that accidents are accidents and good decision making can help avoid some things, but accidents can still happen. And I was completely unprepared for what happened next. You know, that day was a horrible day. But the day immediately following when I went to his home and sat with his wife and his two young sons was the hardest day of my life. And I really recognized that there was a long-term unmet need. And it was through my relationship with his wife, whose name is Lamu Chicky and his two sons, that the inspiration for the Juniper Fund was formed.
1: All right, welcome back to the Rome From Home podcast. Incredibly excited about today's guest. Melissa Arnault. If you've tuned into the world of outdoor adventure, you almost certainly know Melissa as the first American woman to summit and descend Everest without supplemental oxygen, not a small feat. She's summited Everest six times in total and her climbing accomplishments and personal story are very inspiration in their own right. And today she's really joining us to talk about how that being an athlete and her climbing career as an alpinist brought her to her nonprofit work with her nonprofit called The Juniper Fund.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to Melissa today. You know, a few years ago, I had a chance to interview her climbing partner, David Morton. And uh, David and Melissa together in 2012, uh, they founded The Juniper Fund really to formalize a commitment to um, really understand and improve the aftermath of the tragedies uh, that they were seeing and experiencing firsthand in the uh, Himalayan expedition industry. So I'm really interested to hear some of Melissa's reflections and motivations, which led uh, to start up the Juniper Fund. And in the last eight years, the Juniper Fund has provided support for 48 families of lost mountain workers and directly impacted the lives of over 200 people.
1: Yeah, and Melissa, in this episode, she gets into The fun's beginning, which is you'll find that this is the common thread in this season is speaking with inspirational people like Melissa, who have these amazing adventure stories, but then transitioning from how they went from Being uh, an athlete or an adventurer in one way or another into action. And what we hear about is the fun's beginnings and how Melissa and David were able to build trust and community in Nepal. And the advice that Melissa has on becoming a more responsible adventurer and moving from awareness to action. In her case, it's a very personal story and it's different in every episode, but it's incredible to hear Melissa talk about how she, her journey and her path on that, she there's some amazing takeaways that she provides around how you can approach it, um, how to make it sustainable for you in a way too. She got into that a bit, didn't she, Terry?
2: Yeah, she, she definitely did. And it just so turns out that uh, she and Corey have some common history. So uh, we brought Corey in for this interview as well. So let's, uh, let's bring in Corey and, and get started and listen to the conversation. Enjoy.
0: I'm Melissa Arnott Reed, and I am a professional mountain guide and recreational slow uphill walker, and the co-founder of a really meaningful, important nonprofit, the Juniper Fund, and a mother, and a writer, and a multitasker, and uh, keeping it all together. -er.
3: (laughs) And a speaker, and and I mean, you. I think you. That's funny that you're like I recreationally walk uphill slow. I mean, you're a professional athlete, which is. (laughs) <laughs> the big bullet point that you just missed or dodged. I'm not sure what, which. Uh,
0: I, I just walk and I talk. Those are the only two things I can do. And I can do them sometimes at the same time. And can you chew
3: gum is- as well? Or is that no, just no. pushing no, <laughs> out? No. For anybody who doesn't know, you're also the first American woman to climb Everest without oxygen, which is a huge yeah. deal. And I, I was there to watch you stumble back into... Eight thousand three hundred meter, you know, Camp Three, blasted, blown out, and completely um, elated, which was a beautiful sight. So, um, you've had a lot of success in the past few years, but I think one of the most interesting things is your your trajectory in the Himalaya. And and as we were getting started together as climbers, and, and we've had some great climbs together that we can talk about. Just to dive into how the Juniper Fund started. But, you know, it's taken you to this place of forming a deeply impactful. And the thing that the, the Juniper Fund is so amazing, it's, it's personal. Can you tell us a little bit about how the Juniper Fund just came to life? I mean, between you and Dave, and, and if you want to get into Chiwang, I'd love to talk about that a little bit with you as well.
0: Yeah, so I think when I referenced that I work um, or that I co-founded a nonprofit and it's paired with this idea that I'm a professional athlete. It's the assumption that I needed my next step. And so I started a nonprofit to sort of like continue the evolution of my career. And this is categorically not that. I co-founded the Juniper Fund in 2012, which was like in the meat of my um, primary work on Everest. I worked on Everest for 10 years consecutively. And It was founded out of the experiences that I had had in Nepal and working in the Himalaya and what I was seeing. And the fact that year over year, going back and working on Everest and then working on trekking peaks in the region in Nepal, I just had these questions like, where's the support network? And why isn't this done? Who's going to do it? Ultimately, because there was no answer to that, Dave Morton and I decided to co-found the Juniper Fund together. And The deeper meaning, you know, the the real catalyst, I think, for why it became urgent and necessary for me was because in 2010, in the autumn, I was on a climbing expedition with Chuang Nima Sherpa, who is a high altitude worker you know, had the second most summits of, of any human. He'd summited Everest 19 times. And I'd worked with him on Everest for the preceding three years, but also he traveled to the States and worked on Rainier and in Alaska. And so we interacted in a lot of different ways. And, you know, how this brings Corey in is we were all meant to be Chuang, Corey and I on an expedition to Dalagiri and some things happened and we ended up canceling that expedition And so both Chuang and I decided to go and attempt to climb Brunse, which is a 7,000 meter peak near Everest. And on that climb, he went ahead to try to fix the lines for um, some guided clients that were with some of his friends that were guiding there. And when he was climbing towards the summit on the summit ridge, a cornice, um, I think a cornice, but a snow avalanche basically collapsed and swept him away and and he was killed. I, I have said that I've avoided a lot of accidents in the mountains because I'm really conservative, but the truth is that accidents are accidents and good decision-making can help avoid some things, but accidents can still happen. And I was completely unprepared for what happened next. You know, that day was a horrible day, but the day immediately following when I went to his home and sat with his wife and his two young sons was, the hardest day of my life. And I really recognized that there was a long term unmet need. And it was through my relationship with his wife, whose name is Lamu Chiki, and his two sons that the inspiration for the Juniper Fund was formed. I made a personal commitment to support his family financially as long as I had work. You know, I didn't have any means to be able to give them huge amounts of money. I I get my I make my living by working. And so every time I went and I worked in the Himalaya immediately following the accident, I would visit her and bring her what the equivalent of his work would have brought that I was capable of providing. And what was interesting and what I saw was that a couple of really important things happened. She had autonomy to make decisions about what to do with the money. I wasn't telling her, here's money to put your kids in school. She had the independence to give it to the monastery, buy butter, put her kids in school, whatever she wanted to do. And with that autonomy and independence, there comes healing and you don't ever get used to having a life without your partner and the father of your children. But you get a new life and a different one. And I think just seeing the transformation that Lamu Chiki made over the course of years and knowing that her primary concern wasn't how am I going to feed my kids and how am I going to um, donate money to the monastery, which is very important to me. I realize that other families need this support too. And there has to be a way that we can provide this support to other families because I individually absolutely can't do it, but the need is very real.
3: So The premise of the Juniper Fund, so if people haven't caught on, is really to support families who have lost loved ones to high altitude work, correct? I mean, is that basically…
0: Yeah, it's to support families and communities. And I would say support is a funny word because it um, sort of connotes like charity. And what we do is not so much charity as, or what we attempt to do is to uplift people and provide supplemental resources that can help them to thrive. And that's a very tricky and weird thing to say because You don't want to imagine that the death of a loved one in your family, especially a very important person in your family structure and the economic structure of your family, that their death would lead your family to thrive. But that is our wish. That is what we want for the families is that after something horrible happens, we don't see them really suffer more unnecessary loss. And so how can they truly thrive? And we do that in three primary ways. And um, I'll, I can talk about it, or if you want to interject, I don't want to just have a monologue
3: here. <laughs> no, I love your monologuing. It makes my job easier. Just keep going.
0: <laughs> okay, just the perfect. the clock
3: is running. I want you to start just trying to fill awkward silences too, because that's you're good at that.
0: I don't um, do silence. So um, yeah, <laughs> but I will tell you quickly, because I think it's really important. So Dave and I, you know, we really thought, so David Morton was one of my climbing mentors, a guide that I worked with on my first trip working on Everest. I worked as his assistant. And he had also experienced loss of a worker who he was employing or was employed by the company he worked for. And he also had this curiosity of like, can we support families more? And so we were chatting back and forth about this. And then after a few years of supporting Lamu Chiki, we got really into, okay, we have to do this. Like the life insurance that is currently exists is insufficient to support (laughs) family (laughs) long-term. And so we want to be able to like offer some supplemental support and, and cash seems to be really important because like, as I mentioned, it offers autonomy and independence. And so our first program was a cost of living grant. It's still our primary program in the way that we sort of offer support to families. So after a fatality of a high altitude worker, and that's a term that is like defined by the government as a job, a lot of them are Sherpa, some are other members of other tribes. But after the loss of a high altitude worker, we support the family financially with $3,000 a year for five years. And so we spread that out over time so that they're not given this huge lump sum of cash that often flows quickly away. So we sort of continuously support the families. And then after a very short time of doing it, we realized we needed a little bit more comprehensive program. And so we started offering um, vocational training opportunities for families, any family member of a person who had died. So it could have been a brother, it could have been a uncle even uh, a lot of times it is the widows and we offer them opportunities to be trained in a vocation to make their own incomes. Really popular things we do are like restaurant training, beauty shop training, just general shop management, accounting, a lot of language classes, some mountain guide training courses. And then additionally, we offer small business grants. So if you've been trained in a vocation and now you want to take that next step and open a restaurant of your own, we offer grants that are forgivable. Those families can actually have an income in in the loss of their family members. So those are the three ways that we still support families.
2: I w- wanted to step back a little bit because, you know, um, CJ and Corey framed our interest in these conversations is is trying to understand how to narrow this gap between awareness and, and action, right? And yeah. I, it strikes me, knowing your experience and your background, um, that you were clearly aware of the cumulative risks, not only to yourself with engaging in this environment and doing what you do professionally, but certainly uh, those you worked with in the Himalaya were at risk, and and there have been loss, right? And there had been certainly a morbidity in the communities that that serve us, frankly, when we're there, and yet clearly there was a um, this quite this was a seminal moment, unfortunately triggered by, by loss and then confronted with this moment where you're there seated in front of Tronk's family. And clearly there's still an emotional residue to this day from that moment, right? And it's, it's really interesting in that one of the most, I think, motivating factors for action is indeed emotion. And it's, it's been shown now in, in modern science and functional MRI studies that people that have really high altruistic tendencies, um, when they're sitting in front of a person or they're hearing a story about someone else's loss, those who are most inclined to give and take action are, are ones whose areas of their brain that that is actually like feeling pain and suffering lights up mm-hmm. when they're hearing the story of someone else. So it's like this idea of of mirror neurons. And even when we're hearing your story, and I look at the others here, and and I know we've all had our own loss, and it triggers my own memories of listening to somebody else's painful loss of suffering. And that clearly was maybe not everything, but part of the step for you to kind of be like, okay, now here's a clear pathway for me to do something. And so there's two things I wanted to riff on with that. One is, uh, one, do you agree? Do you think that was part of the reason that kind of finally gave you the final push? And then two... When we're trying to motivate other people that don't have these really powerful experiences, and in in some ways we actually don't want them to suffer (laughs) in that way, but actually how do we get them to help donate to your cause to be motivated in the same way? Because I have a feeling you and your board have probably been talked about tools and mechanisms to enhance your fundraising and help support your cause.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, what you what you say about sort of that mirror emotion and and having that trigger, I think it's very easy to understand why somebody like myself who was personally impacted by a loss would want to do something. But if you think about the practicality of the choices in front of me in 2010 in the fall. You know, I was really confronted with the choice of I can get on an airplane right now and fly back to the States, kick Corey out of my condo, I think at that time um, and and go and just continue my life. And I can be sad and I can have showed my condolences to the family, but it wasn't my fault. It wasn't something I did. I'm not, I don't have to do anything else. The easiest thing to do, which as humans, we are kind of inclined to want things to be easy, unless you're like all of us. Cause I think we generally are inclined to make things as hard as possible, but you know, we do want to do what's easy, especially emotionally. The easiest thing to do would be to go back home. And to never go back and to have ended my career in the Himalaya right then and there and just said, it's too much. The loss risk is too much. I've been faced with it. I saw it. It's not, it's, I can't do this. And instead I sort of had to have like a dark night of the soul and, and have an experience where I really, I'm a, I'm a very pragmatic person. And so I thought about it very practically. And I thought if the only support the family received was what I was able to give in that moment. And the only time they ever saw my face again was right after his death. We're stuck. We're frozen in time with the situation exactly as is. And I have the opportunity to go and be really viscerally uncomfortable for the next many, many years of my life. And I still am, honestly. Like, I have a wonderful friendship with Chuang's wife and even, I would say, a more special friendship with his sons, particularly one who lives, you know, a few hours away from me. I still have tremendous anxiety and fear right before I see them. And that lives in me because I think the choice to do the hard thing and to go back and to try to find a way to support them. And it's, and it's hard to articulate this, like, you might be listening and think like, well, why is that so hard? You're going and giving them money. That's great. I can't even possibly articulate to you how disgusting it feels to be a Western white employed woman and go and sit inside of a woman's house and hand her an envelope of cash instead of her husband. That's the worst case scenario for me is doing that. But you know, the one notch worse is not being able to support her at all or these other families. And so I think how we activate other folks to care. You know, in my experience prior to Chuang's death, just the previous year on Everest in 2009, a high altitude worker, a Sherpa was killed in the icefall by ice. And I, I literally, a literal hat was passed around base camp to collect funds for his family. And it did not feel good to watch that. It did not feel like putting money in that hat was activating any meaningful change in that family's life. And I that feeling inside of me was like this. I don't know if this is good. I don't know if what we're doing is right or good, or does this just make us feel better because we don't have to then look at the closer thing. And so one of the really important elements of the Juniper fund, and we've really been trying to focus on this year is to both elevate the stories of who the people were who died. That's an easy emotional reaction for people to understand that now there's a loss, but even more so, Elevate the stories of their families in their own voice. And I think story, as you guys know, is like one of the most powerful emotional activators that we as humans have as a tool. It's probably our most powerful tool is story. And so really helping to really just elevate and, and put those stories out to the public. And what I have found is people that have zero interest <laughs> and zero um, connection to Himalayan climbing. They're not even armchair mountaineers. They don't follow it at all. They think of a Sherpa as a, as a person who carries loads. They don't even understand the um, tribal aspects of what the Sherpa, capital S Sherpa is. And those are some of like our most passionate and committed donors who become evangelical for not us, not for the Juniper Fund, but for the individuals who we're supporting. Because seeing people uplift themselves and take a bad situation and sprinkle hope is one of the most satisfying human experiences. Hope is what keeps us moving forward when things are awful. And sometimes it just takes seeing somebody in a really awful situation and see where they got their hope and how it's transformed them. And it's just one of the most powerful things. And so that's, Mm. that's our work is to help to get those stories out and share who these people actually are and what their, what their lives are and what it's, what it's been like for them and not just in a, like, it's horrible, here's poverty, it's so poor, because you know, the other very complicated thing is that they're a really impoverished country and there's like a foreign American view on how we help people in third world countries that feels very insensitive <laughs> and uh, very assumptive that, um, oh my gosh, if you live in this tiny home with all of your family inside your home, that, that's horrible. We need to fix that. And like, that's not the truth of the situation <laughs> for the folks that we work with. The truth of the situation is sit still listen which don't tell them what you think they need listen for a long time and then listen some more and they will tell you what they need and then act and then take that information and act instead of coming in and deciding like how we're going to you know fix poverty by putting kids in school that is a good thing in some scenarios but it's not the right thing in all scenarios and i think that's really important
2: yeah, you're, you're hitting on another topic. I, there's just a great segue that, that I wanted to hit with you, but um, just to reframe and go back and just summarize what you said, because I also think this is just a general challenge for this, this whole world of trying to get good conversion into effective philanthropy is um, there's a subtle balance between making people feel uncomfortable. Like there's, there's actually a lot of power in that uncomfortable space. to want to do something about it, but then not paralyzing them with futility about how sad the situation is and then instilling hope. So Mm -hmm. it's like, you need a story to make people uncomfortable about the loss to feel the loss you felt, Mm -hmm. but not belabor it so long that you lose them before you tell them like, Hey, but this is all the wonderful progress that has been made. And the timing between those two (laughs) can be really critical, but also really tricky. And then in that action and actually making it effective, going going forward to your last point here, what I hear you saying is really what a lot of people would talk about, this concept of radical listening and avoiding being the white savior and having the white savior complex, like coming in with your preconceived notions that I have my master's degree or I'm a doctor or I work in a nonprofit and I have this great idea for this community and this is what's going to fix the problem and I'm going to come with my program. Versus coming down and meeting with your intended recipients of your philanthropy and just being like, what's going to work? Like, what do you guys need? And so I'm curious with with the Juniper Fund, did you initially come in with some preconceived notions on what was going to be most effective? Or did you just start out right from the very beginning because of this shared moment of trying to make sense of Chuang's loss and kind of what to do next? And also Dave's, what, David's with his loss, like you just sit with the families and say, Hey, how can we, how can we help and listen and, and derive kind of your action plan from there? Just curious on your experience.
0: Well, I mean, I am just a normal ego driven human who thinks I know everything. And so I think, of course, we started out being like, we definitely know how to fix the situation here and what to do for these people and had thoughts of imposing our will. (laughs) And I think the concept of white saviorism was like in my brain at that moment in time, or that our work could ever be perceived that way. And that's like not for us to judge, right? Like we don't get to decide if we're perceived that way or not. And and so I think we had a lot of ideas, but one of the things that um, somewhat maybe by luck, but I think also by experience and observation for both of us, we had, for David and I, when we started this, we had so many conversations with each other and I literally can go back and query my email and I can find like a hundred email threads of the same conversation about, should we do education? Should we put kids in school? Because it's the, one of the most powerful tools to get money from donors because donors have been told repeatedly how education changes, not just the situation immediately, but long term. And there's all of these like incredible experiences of people who receive education. And I personally felt extremely stubbornly strong that we can't decide that if, if education is the thing that will uplift them most, we have to let them decide that. And we had these debates of like, we're just giving cash to people. What if they just buy like a bunch of whiskey or what if their family gets robbed because they know that we've come to town to give them cash. And it's like, well, then we're not depriving them of a normal life experience. We're not controlling their life experience. That's, you know, we're bringing something into their, their world, but it still, again, autonomy, it, it just maintains so much of that. and. I think one of the most powerful things that happened very serendipitously was I was traveling to New York for work right when we first were forming the idea of what the Juniper Fund was going to be. And I was in a hotel late at night scrolling through the TV because I never have TV. And so it's all fun. And there was a documentary on that was Nicholas Kristoff's Half the Sky. And um, oh, God, I mean, it couldn't have happened at a better moment in time because I bought the book. I made Dave read it. I was like, look at how it can be done right. And the takeaway of that was let people tell you what they need and then see if you can provide that. And I'm so grateful for that. The thing we decided, we picked a kind of, it's not totally random, but we picked kind of like a random amount of money to give to families. We tried to judge what's enough, but not too much. How do we economically fit in so that it's not a windfall, but it's enough for survival. And you can't know that every family's economic situation is different. Um, But it worked. We just tested it. And the thing that happened that I think everything happens in sequence in life as needed is that in 2012, we estimated that max, we would have four to five families to support in a really catastrophic year. And we estimated that based on historic data that we had available to us. In 2014, just two years after we started, and only one year after we had paid any families, 16 local workers were killed in one accident. And we were one of the only entities that had the infrastructure and the ability to support families long-term and not just cash in hat, hand people something. And 2015, you know, the earthquake happened in Nepal, and it was devastating. For so many people on so many levels, but also expedition workers. And again, we were already operational, and we had an ability for people who had incredible platforms to fundraise, like Corey, um, through photo sales. We had an avenue for that money to be distributed in a tried and tested way. You know where we knew we were going to provide long-term support to families. It wasn't random we have a employee on the ground in Nepal that is like an amazing combination of a social worker and everything. Our director, Nepal director, she does everything. And and that, I just think, you know, we couldn't have imagined that it would go that way. But what we had started, we have stayed true to. And I think that that's community-driven support.
3: You've been surrounded by, I mean, not just Chuang. I knew Chuang. We climbed Ama together, Ama de Blom with Chuang. And Anna was- I mean, he was just a, a really amazing human. He was gentle and kind and friendly and funny, and he was deep. And I was, you know, I just re- I remember I I left an expedition when I had heard what happened, and I and to your point, I just went home because I didn't know what else to do. And and you took that pain and that grief, and you you channeled it, you directed it. I think one of the most admirable things about you, somebody who's known you for a long time and watched you is that you have the capacity to, there's like an alchemy, right? Where you take something that is so painful and you move it into action that is so empowering. But it's not, honestly, Melissa, it's not just with you know the sherpa community or high altitude worker community it's i mean i've seen you do this in other ways too you've been surrounded by a lot of pain and a lot of loss and a lot of grief is that do you think that's unique to you or do you have a toolbox that i mean how do you how do you move from grief to action
0: yeah i mean that it's so complicated i think some things are, and I appreciate your words, Corey, because you know, you know, a lot of my life story and sort of what has brought me to where I am now. And you've witnessed some of that hurt and, and hardships. I think one of the things that feels very much what drives me is this idea that no matter how bad things get in your life, no matter who you are. And I mean that truly and as encompassing as it is, there's always a choice. And it can be a really tiny one. It can be to just open your eyes or close them. But you have some choice. And as long as you have that, you can put the things in front of you and try to choose action. And, you know, I have like my one of my driving mantras is always forward. And that can be kind of thought of recklessly, like, oh, just plow forward through it. It's not that it's don't stop. If you can move forward, don't go back if you can move forward. And I think in my very young life, I had to deal with Some really painful life altering circumstances as a very small child without the autonomy of being an adult and knowing about, oh, I have choices. I can leave this situation. I can stay in this situation. And there's this really critical junction. And I remember it, you know, from being five years old and being 12 years old and being 16 years old of. I can get out of this. I can move forward. I have to move forward though. And forward is not easy. It's never easy. Stopping and like cradling yourself in the discomfort of your grief is somewhat weirdly comforting. It's like, this feels nice. This is not because it's what I know. It's not going to change. It's not going to surprise me. It's what I know. I can just live and exist in this. But if you can get out of it and expose yourself, it is the actual journey to vulnerability. And I think that that is the way that you live the most enriched life. And I spent 25 years of my life avoiding full vulnerability, but like um, flirting with it, <laughs> you know, like trying to expose myself to things that really felt tender and uncomfortable, and then retreating back into that comfy shell of grief and being like, okay, I can't do that. That's too much. And then opening back up just a little bit, and then finally, like, be finding the uh, courage to be liberated. And I think, you know, for folks that are like, cool, that's cool. Good story. Not me, not me ever. I'm not going to be that person. I can't, I'm never the action person. Just remember like courage is in us all. And it happens daily, daily. We have these little acts of courage. And if you can exercise them slightly bigger, you will change the shape of the container. And then action, suddenly you realize that's become a life of action. You know, you, it's ended up being a whole life of action. So I don't know if it's innately in me. I don't think I'm different from anybody. I wish I was, I wish I was like unique and special and you know, only one of me, but I think what's within me is within us all. And I think we all have like some of the same thoughts and emotions. And if I've said anything that you're like, Oh, that resonates. That's because we all think the same thing. <laughs> and that's like the great secret is that we could all do this. You know, we can all enact change and it doesn't have to be grand in a one sweep of a brush and everything has changed. It's it's often not. It's small, small little gestures of daily life that add up and create a journey.
3: All of what you said, I really appreciate so much because it is, I mean, I, I've talked about this in the lead up to this season. I've talked about it on the first episode. It, it can be very overwhelming looking at sort of the magnitude of issues that we we are facing in our personal lives or as a as a human family. And with that sort of gravity, it's hard to activate. And one of the things that I think the Juniper Fund is so amazing, or one of the ways it's so amazing, is that it literally is a personal interaction, right? It is not a massive organization where you put some money in as a donor and you don't you have no idea really where it goes. I mean I think there's a kernel in there that's special for people because it allows them to feel like they're personally connected to the action they're taking. And I think that's really important, right? Like it's not, it's hard when you donate to some of these massive charities or these huge organizations, because you're like, well, did I do anything? The Juniper Fund is very different that way. You know what I mean?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, for me personally to go and sit with the families, which I do every year, barring 2020 being the only one that I haven't, these are real human people, you know, like I go into the country and it is not all gratitude and draping you with blessing scarves and saying, Oh my God, thank you so much for making my life so great. It's a lot of tears. It's a lot of tough, firm conversations, people asking for things we can't deliver us asking things of people that were commitments that they made to us it's not all just like rainbows and butterflies and altruism is feels good it's hard but it's human you know it's like as dimensioned as humans are and we have 48 families individuals that we support and through that we've counted because it's like you said it's it isn't some big conglomerate we know who we support there's 185 individual humans who are supported through the work of the Juniper Fund. And that includes the kids inside of the families. That includes, you know, if it's a brother that's the beneficiary or a mother, it includes her additional children. And we make our every effort to make individual physical contact with all of those people. And there are some that we can't. They're really remote in areas that are hard for us to get to and wouldn't be right for us to go to anyway. But we have this wonderful Nepal operations manager that's just the backbone of everything. And she makes great contact. And yeah, it's so, it's so true. It's humans. It's like in 2015, after the earthquake, there is a worker whose family we supported. And it was a really unique situation because typically we only support high altitude workers, but he was a base camp staff. And there was a couple of those. And we talked about it as a board and said, we can't justify not supporting the base camp staff's families because they all died in the same accident. And this feels right. And so we supported his family as well. And being a base camp worker, he was making a lower wage than a high altitude worker would. His family was not Sherpa, different tribe, lived in a a lowland village outside of Kathmandu. And we decided to give them the same program support that we do all the families. So $3,000 a year for five years offer of vocational training and small business grants. And we met with his mom and dad and they requested that we buy 10 chickens for them because they had wanted to start a chicken farm. That I think was like, I'd have to look at what the money was. I'm pretty sure it was like $50. And we decided to approve that grant and we bought them 10 chickens. And one year later, when we returned back, they had a hundred chickens. And now they just requested a grant to buy some goats, I believe, some goats or sheep. They farm half of their chickens for meat and then they farm the other half for eggs. And I can just tell you the light and joy in that family's eyes. They love for us to take pictures of them with the chickens. And um, it's just this really amazing experience. And it's like, I think the conversation we had as a board was like, uh uh-oh, what are we going to do? We're going to take this high dollar amount for a worker that wasn't making that amount. And we're just going to make his family rich because he died. And guess what? We, did, we decided to do that and look at what they did. They support almost you know, half of their community that they live in through their farming. And so could it be negative? Sure. It was so positive, though. And it's things like that where it's like, that is a real human person with a name and emotions. And that will take me back again and again. And every time it's hard and every time we make mistakes because we make mistakes all the time, You know, we misfire and do something that doesn't work out well. And we don't stop, but learn and then go again. And you root yourself into those successes and you learn from those failures.
2: Yeah, I want to expand on Corey's point a little bit here because I do, I do think it's the beauty of the Juniper Fund is is um, the, somewhat the serendipity and the relationship that exists that led to its existence and also leads to current opportunities like the story you just shared. One thing actually, to be honest with you, I, I currently struggle with, in I guess in my own calculus of how I can do the most good is there is this concept that I think Corey was introducing here this like salience. Like it's it's very clear how I should potentially respond to Mm -hmm. Chuang's death because of the opportunity I have. I know the relationship, I'm looking at the wife in the eye. Here's the opportunity. Then you went on to this other story. You, know, you, you ran into the staff at, at base camp that suffered also equal tragedy from the avalanche and had a response. But I'm sure there's other moments when you're traveling around the world or in other places that are not attached to the target of the Juniper Fund. And you just start in your mind, you're thinking and calculating. Okay, well, wow, if it, it, or even if you're like in the Dolpo or Mustang, some other place that's you know in Nepal, but totally separated from you know the hotbed of climbing community where they're technically not suffering losses within mountain work. You're know, like, wow, that five hundred dollars we gave to those few families for this, what could it do for this yak herder in this community? You know, I think that's where there's a there's a tough balance in that. Um, not everybody has the opportunity to feel. Uh, an intimate connection with how they can do good. And that's part of the reason I, I decided actually to go to medicine because it was very clear to me that I, I would immediately have this salience and this feedback that I'm doing something good for one person. But at the same time, I am now at this critical point in my own life where I don't think I'm doing enough good because just taking care of a patient in front of me is not the most effective way I can do good. And it's about trying to motivate other people to think about just giving money to charities that are, are, are doing good. And so I'm just kind of curious if you've, if you've had that experience and uh, just your own philosophy with philanthropy and how you might balance that out. I'm not suggesting the Juniper Fund needs to change anything they're doing because there's a beauty in having a very concrete goal and a very concrete program, programmatic objective.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: uh, I'm thinking about our general audience that might be listening here that they don't have these intimate connections. They have not yet to have this experience. They might be motivated by your own, but I also don't want them to feel paralyzed that they shouldn't give to foundations that buy bed nets to prevent malaria uh, and people dying in sub-Saharan Africa.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a good point. I think um, it is terrifying to imagine waking up in the morning and, and living your life with trying to meet all of the need in the world. Like, Overwhelming, I will get back in bed for sure. I can't handle that too much. I think we all understand that. And that has been a guiding philosophy for us with the Juniper Fund is a really focused mission. I think one of the things I encourage folks who want to have generosity, and generosity, you have to remember, doesn't always have to be financial if that's not where your generosity pool is most full. Um, It often is most effective when it's financial, honestly, no matter what, even small financial gifts are often much more effective than physical labor donations or other things like that for a lot of organizations, not just ours, but it's focused generosity. And I imagine, and this is like a literal tool that I use when I get, start to get overwhelmed and think, oh my gosh, this upper Mustang family who has no toilet the $500 could change their life for the next 10 years. And it's such a small portion of what I'm giving to this other family that has income and recurrent and runs a business and whatever to keep myself from like spiraling down that path. And just, cause I will, I will become unanchored then, you know, and I will just want, I, I won't have a focus. I won't have a, a focus. And I think that's something that's so important to form those connections for any person who is wanting to exercise generosity is that I give focused generosity. So one of the things I do is I just mentally create a map in my mind and this is like how my brain works. And so welcome in, I hope you can leave. Um, It's this idea that I give this choice of money to this one family and then they buy these 10 chickens for example. And then they grow their business and they have four other kids and their kids watch that business grow and they watch their entrepreneurial parents and they decide, okay, I'm going to become entrepreneurial. And I see also this community support and I'm going to make sure that my entrepreneurialness can also support individuals who are one link for my family. And I start to draw these lines and I'm making up a story, right? I don't know that it's true, but I've seen it play out where it's like this one focused generosity that is very specific is having this really widespread net And impact. And that is the best way for me to impact large areas of people that otherwise feels overwhelming. And so I think that imagination is really powerful. And of course, we want to imagine things are always great. And hopefully they are. But I think going through that exercise of like, what is the impact that I've chosen to make? What's its true impact? And that, that requires some generosity to yourself <laughs> to imagine that your impact is, is big. And I, I think that that's really important. But I will tell you, Terry, the, one of the most important pieces of complimentary feedback that we receive from the Juniper Fund mm-hmm. is you guys have done a really good job at keeping your mission tight and focused. Yes. And I can tell you, we're a bunch of, I mean, Dave and I are a bunch of mountain guides with ADD, like we're easily distractible. We're like, oh, shiny thing, go run over there, be, do that thing, like we, we've we done this, we'll just start this other thing. And to be focused is an exercise in restraint and that restraint has resulted in abundance. And I, I would do it again, for sure. It's been such a great lesson.
3: An exercise in restraint that has resulted in abundance. I wanna like repeat that because that's just such a great, takeaway for people and you can you can exchange restraint for simply the idea that the smallest amount of impact if directed well can result in massive abundance right Mm -hmm. i I think that right there is the kernel of one of the kernels that we're trying to get at this with this entire podcast this season is that your action can be small and directed and in making it small and directed and focused you can actually have a larger long-term impact and you just have to choose what it is that you want to invest in. And that can be with money, like you said, which is often one of the best ways. It can also just be with time, which you said is sometimes less effective, but maybe finding a way with time with an organization that needs it most, uh, you can do that. i sorry, I just, I really love that point. That is such no. a, um, a good point.
2: It's great, Corey. I think it's super key. And I also think that the mission creep that you kind of were referencing here is a classic folly, right? I mean, you are in your action trying to convey a very direct, poignant and relatable story of how you responded, what you did. That does have long-term beneficial consequences that can fit the greater good, but you really do need to be focused in what you are talking about, how you're responding really to inspire other people too. And on your own time, you may decide you're just you know with extra money you have you can give to other effective organizations, um, but you just don't need to self publicize about it because it's not your story, it's not your pitch that you're trying to kind of move forward.
0: Yeah, and I. I I think curiosity is this other great driver Mm -hmm. of generosity and impact. And I think the idea that we perceive the only way to have impact is to uh, give individually, either, again, labor um, resources of whatever means. A lot of the ways that I try to have impact in areas that I'm not serving through the work of the Juniper Fund is by being evangelical and sharing stories of what I've seen. I mean, I think you guys can relate to this traveling And being in areas where you're surrounded by people who have a different background from you is one of the greatest gifts of the world. It's one of the things we should all try to take in in whatever ways we can. And when I receive those gifts, then taking those stories and sharing them through, as best I can, the voices that shared them with me is an incredible way to have impact as well. And so I think, you know, deciding how you choose to uh, deliver your resources is something that's really a powerful way to to not be exhausted, honestly, to not just say, Oh, I'm only doing this. Cause I'm definitely not like our lives are too dynamic and dimensional. So I'm doing other things, but I'm choosing how I, how I direct resources to different places.
2: Yeah. And not to stay entrenched in focus. I think there's certain times where there is just an overwhelming undeniable opportunity to try to respond and make a difference that just presents itself, which was part of the origin story here. But we did want to give some time to talk a little bit about how you pivoted in response to COVID-19 with your particular foundation before we run out of time here? Cause I, I don't know anything about it, frankly, that's yeah. the first I'd heard from Healy. So give some time to that. And then obviously we want to give you some opportunity to talk to our listeners about how they can get involved with your work going forward.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Terry. Um, You know, I think COVID-19 for us was like a real exercise again in restraint and like, who are we, what do we do? And When the communities that we're most committed to supporting are suffering these huge losses with the loss of the industry, of the tourism industry for a whole year, what can we do to support them? And I will just tell you the most meaningful thing I think that we did as an organization was continuously, regularly, and persistently talk to the families. I find it to be all the people in Nepal, but definitely the Sherpa community is they're very present-minded and having a conversation that's like, what are you going to do if things stay exactly like this for three months? And then what are you going to do in six months? is like a very abstract thought process a lot of times. And we were really persistent with that and trying to gauge what the potential needs were going to be as they came up. And then, We as an organization decided to um, activate a small program that we'd previously started, which was need based grants, which is the only form of charity that we do that's not connected to individuals sort of having this capability of furthering the dollars we give. It was just need based. So it's like, what if this person's saying everything's shut down? I'm going to sell my restaurant because I can't make any money. I'll just buy another restaurant once things open back up. And we're like, okay, no, no, no. Is there any way we can support you through that so that you don't have to sell your restaurant? Yes. If I didn't have have to pay rent for three months. I would be okay. Okay. We can support that. And so doing these really small, really focused and offering it sort of equally to every family who had any need and providing support like that. And then, you know, as things in Nepal, the situation with COVID started to be more understandable and under control, we were able to put on a mountain guide training course that was 10 days and socially distanced and incredible. It's probably one of my favorite things that we've ever done. Almost half the participants were women who want to be mountain guides, which is definitely a change of tide. And it was run by Dali Yangsham, who's a female Sherpa and certified mountain guide as well. And so just being able to offer that point of connection and again, a resource to allow people to uplift themselves. So we're still doing it. You know, we're in it right now of continuous checking in with folks. The lockdowns in Nepal have changed quite significantly and folks are doing a lot better, but we felt as an organization, like things are hard everywhere and we don't want to have people again, suffer unnecessarily if we can be support without changing our whole organization to like a relief organization.
3: One of the great things about this podcast and we get amazing guests like you. And I mean, I I could just talk to you for hours because I love to hear you talk. And I think you are so brilliant with how you're moving forward and moving from sort of a um, you've really moved into purpose and service. And I, and I, I guess what I'm asking in this question is how can other people help you do that? Whether it's with the Juniper Fund, I mean that's the that's the immediate question. How can they get involved with the Juniper Fund? What do you need? And also, if it's not the Juniper Fund, what wisdom do you have for people who want to be involved but feel paralyzed in this moment with all of these you know big movements happening around them?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll reverse the order of my answers. But you know, if people want to take action but are feeling paralyzed in whatever things they're debating taking action with. I think remembering that uh, it's a cliche, but it's very true. It's like small movements forward result in big journeys. And so just never underestimating the impact of really small movements and the discovery within that. And I think for me, one of the most powerful tools is to enter situations where I want to have an impact with a very curious mind and really open ears, curious mind And as a learning exercise and your best course of action will unfold itself to you. It really will. And I think like you have to just remember that and figure out, do I need to pep talk myself regularly? Like this feels insignificant. Why bother? I doubt it's insignificant. Really small actions. I mean, I think just so you know, from like a person who also struggles with like, how do I give, what resources do I extend? Where do I put my generosity? And also I run an organization which relies on people doing that the perfect equation of generosity is that you don't remember what you gave. (laughs) So I think we're always looking for these like soul-changing actions where it's like, oh, it changed my life. I became involved with this organization. That could happen. But the best generosity is you don't remember it. And the person who received it will never forget it. And that's the mathematical equation that can keep you moving forward. It shouldn't be so dramatic in your life that you um, think about it all the time because you probably overextended yourself if that's the case and that's not sustainable. And so, you know, try to figure out what that balance is, maybe some trial and error, but keep moving. And then for the Juniper Fund, I think something that I want to ask of folks, and this is something I always ask of anybody who is interested in supporting what we're doing and seeing us be able to continue to support families and and them support themselves is, you know, if you have no means financially to donate to an organization, then become uh, evangelical for us. (laughs) Tell somebody, just one person, even today, when you listen to this, just tell them about the Juniper Fund. And if we just commit to sharing the word, it, it really goes quite far. But if you do have means to provide some support to us, One thing that I have found to be incredibly rewarding is you can go on to our site, which is the juniperfund.org, and there's the capability for you to start your own fundraiser. And when you start your own fundraiser, you get the empowerment of doing what I do. You're going to raise your own funds. We're going to deliver those to a family. We will tell you who that family is. If you wish to be connected directly, there is the opportunity that we can do that because we are such a... Uh, intensely focused organization, and um, if it feels right. And so I think it's a wonderful way where you can give yourself and you can empower people in your community to also understand this need and And also give. And our organization runs on donations from people. That is how our organization survives. To date, since two thousand and twelve, we've delivered over seven hundred thousand dollars to families in Nepal. That is all money that has come from individuals giving personal gifts and and having that connection to those people. So it's you know, the hardest thing I do is go and visit the families, and the only thing that would make it harder is if I didn't have some way to support them. So that's that's what I need all of you to help me with.
3: I fucking love that concept. And I wish that is such a secret sauce thing. Start your own fundraiser. I mean, if I'm speaking honestly, one of the things that I, one of my issues is that I want some ownership over my, and it's ego driven, right? Like this is a very honest thing to say, but I want some recognition for what I'm doing. Right. And I know that's not right. I know that's not correct. I know I'm not supposed to say that out loud, but I think that's very human. And it stops a lot of people from taking action Mm -hmm. because they don't get their piece of the pie for look at me I did something good that's normal that's normal for people to want that and I know it's not cool to say it out loud but fuck it let's be honest that's a that's a real thing and so the ability to start your own fundraiser and get that little piece of validation Mm -hmm. in return I think is so brilliant I love that piece of the juniper fund and I was like oh shit I maybe should I do that on dollar Gary this year right like why not you know
0: Well, you know, I will say too. So, those are our two human needs, right? Is like personal recognition. And then the second one is to be part of a community. And I know that what you guys have done with Rome from Home now and your community is incredibly powerful. And I constantly interact with people who are part of your community. And so, like, can I gift you, Corey, the opportunity to both be recognized as an individual and be the component of a community and we'll start a Rome from home fundraiser. And anybody who is listening to this, that wants to contribute by both letting Corey feel loved and acknowledged and uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's going to push
2: that. Down. He's going to push that hard.
3: He's going to push
0: that. Uh, hard. Uh, <laughs> uh, see if, if Rome from home could be our biggest individual fundraiser. And then for anybody who wants to be more of an individual, you can also start your own, but we'll, we'll start that on your behalf, Corey. So this is gonna be Rome from home to benefit Corey's delicate ego and many families. As well. <laughs> <laughs> we can do both, we can do both. <laughs>
3: Oh, can it be Terry and Chris? If it's to, if it's to, if it's to benefit our delicate ego, I want to make sure that I'm not the only one taking the brunt <laughs> of that. Jesus,
0: I, just, I mean, it's my untrained amateur psychologist, but it is your delicate ego speaking that wants you now to be the same as them and not different. Just a Of course,
3: no, it's it's you're you're calling me out, and it's really uncomfortable. The podcast is over. No, I'm just joking. For those of you um, who are not watching this, uh, Corey's shifting a lot, and it's yeah, seemed. I'm sh- I'm shifting in my chair, and it's just really uncomfortable. <laughs> we like to do for
0: those. That's how we know it's working.
3: <laughs> no, it's it's a good point. Uh, you may you raise a great point that that is th- those are our basic human needs. And um and like I said, it's not a popular thing to voice. But if I can give voice to that and say that's pretty normal, maybe maybe other people can then activate through it. So okay. for Corey's gentle, delicate ego, mm-hmm. let's let's do a, a roam from home fundraiser for the Juniper Fund. I love that idea and it has to be called that in the show notes by the way yeah
0: it's going to be called that on the fundraising page just so I, you know and like yeah. I, I can't i can't oh,
2: wait honestly. to see the picture Corey. yeah i can't oh, wait to see the well, picture like an extended don't,
1: don't hand with a little little tiny cory <laughs> like a, with, a, with an aura around it like a little
3: yeah. halo uh-uh
0: no i will choose the photo and i already know what it is
3: <laughs> is it me eating a snickers i don't know
0: Yes. <laughs> the ego in its most delicate and raw form.
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Terry, Chris, I just, I, I mean, if you guys have other questions, I want to give you that platform, but I also just want to extend my deepest gratitude um, and appreciation to you, Melissa. We've, we've had a long, long journey together as friends. And um, I think what's interesting about this podcast is we didn't even really talk about that. And that says so much to me about the work that you're doing the level that you're operating at, I mean, I'd love to tell stories, but that's an easy default. And I'm just so, so proud of you as a human. And I, it's been a joy to witness your evolution. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today and and share what you have. I really, really, really mean that. Uh, Absolutely. It was a real pleasure to refine my own philosophy
2: by picking up on some pearls from you. So thanks a ton.
0: Oh, I appreciate you guys. And I appreciate this uh, opportunity to share what I'm doing and you guys using your platform to elevate this type of thinking for individuals. I think it's really powerful. And when I play the mental game of connecting, where does the action go? The action you guys are having through this is huge. And it connects to all of the listeners and anybody who takes action in their own lives in any way. And I just don't underestimate that. So I appreciate y'all having me come and chat with you. It's been so fun.
1: Thank you, Melissa. And you've you've actually connected the dots in this single episode on moving from the platform of awareness that we're putting out there to now we're gonna start a fundraiser on what Corey's doing. And that is action for our listeners. So we can actually uh, you know, look in the show notes and pay attention. We're working it out in real time right now, but there will be action you could take from this episode. Thank you, Melissa, for weaving that together right here on home yeah. from home pretty awesome excellent all right thanks for joining us everybody that was awesome conversation. Great to hear the back and forth between Corey and Melissa and her whole story is just, uh, there's really some amazing takeaways in that episode, uh, really super aligned with what we're trying to do here is to give you some tangible stories and some tangible takeaways on how you can move from awareness to action.
2: Yeah. And and thanks again to Melissa. It really was so insightful and what a treat to be invited into really the journey and the thought process that was behind responding to what uh, she and David were seeing in the climbing industry and, and founding the Juniper fund in an effort to, to really give back in a meaningful way. And, um, you know, for, from us at The Adventure Activist, again, thanks to the Juniper Fund for doing good work and service of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, in particular, goal number one, uh, helping combat against poverty, uh, goal number four, providing quality education, uh, goal number eight, uh, helping to provide decent work and economic growth to uh, the communities affected. So, uh, so awesome uh, that they've put together this uh, fund uh, to help contribute to those causes. Uh, let's uh, remind all our listeners that uh, a promise was made uh, to help Melissa and the Juniper Fund uh, raise some some money this year uh, and to support their causes going forward. So, Rome for Home and the Adventure Activist uh, together we're aiming to raise five thousand dollars this season to support the Juniper Fund. So if Melissa's story inspired you to get involved in supporting families affected by the loss of Himalayan high altitude workers, uh, you can follow the link in this episode's show notes
1: to contribute to our fundraiser to help meet our goal. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Roam from Home.